Chapter Three of A Princess of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Thomas Copeland. Chapter Three, My Advent on Mars. I opened my eyes upon a strange and weird landscape. I knew that I was on Mars. Not once did I question either my sanity or my wakefulness. I was not asleep. No need for pinching here. My inner consciousness told me as plainly that I was upon Mars as your conscious mind tells you that you are upon Earth. You do not question the fact, neither did I. I found myself lying prone upon a bed of yellowish moss-like vegetation which stretched around me in all directions for interminable miles. I seemed to be lying in a deep circular basin, along the outer verge of which I could distinguish the irregularities of low hills. It was midday. The sun was shining full upon me, and the heat of it was rather intense upon my naked body, yet no greater than would have been true under similar conditions on an Arizona desert. Here and there were slight outcroppings of quartz-bearing rock, which glistened in the sunlight, and a little to my left, perhaps a hundred yards, appeared a low, walled enclosure about four feet in height. No water, and no other vegetation than the moss was in evidence, and, as I was somewhat thirsty, I determined to do a little exploring. Springing to my feet, I received my first Martian surprise, for the effort which on earth would have brought me standing upright carried me into the Martian air to the height of about three yards. I alighted softly upon the ground, however, without appreciable shock or jar. Now commenced a series of evolutions which even then seemed ludicrous in the extreme. I found that I must learn to walk all over again. As the muscular exertion which carried me easily and safely upon earth played strange antics with me upon Mars. Instead of progressing in a sane and dignified manner, my attempts to walk resulted in a variety of hops which took me clear of the ground a couple of feet at each step and landed me sprawling upon my face or back at the end of each second or third hop. My muscles, perfectly attuned and accustomed to the force of gravity on earth, played the mischief with me in attempting for the first time to cope with the lesser gravitation and lower air pressure on Mars. I was determined, however, to explore the low structure which was the only evidence of habitation in sight, and so I hit upon the unique plan of reverting to first principles in locomotion, creeping. I did fairly well at this, and in a few moments had reached the low encircling wall of the enclosure. There appeared to be no doors or windows upon the side nearest me, but as the wall was but about four feet high, I cautiously gained my feet and peered over the top upon the strangest sight it had ever been given me to see. The roof of the enclosure was of solid glass, about four or five inches in thickness, and beneath this were several hundred large eggs, perfectly round and snowy white. The eggs were nearly uniform in size, being about two and one-half feet in diameter. Five or six had already hatched, and the grotesque caricatures which sat blinking in the sunlight were enough to cause me to doubt my sanity. They seemed mostly head, with little scrawny bodies, long necks, and six legs, or, as I afterward learned, two legs and two arms, with an intermediary pair of limbs which could be used at will either as arms or legs. 
Their eyes were set at the extreme sides of their heads, a trifle above the center, and protruded in such a manner that they could be directed either forward or back, and also independently of each other, thus permitting this queer animal to look in any direction, or in two directions at once, without the necessity of turning the head. The ears, which were slightly above the eyes and closer together, were small cup-like antennae, protruding not more than an inch on these young specimens. Their noses were but longitudinal slits in the center of their faces, midway between their mouths and ears. There was no hair on their bodies, which were of a very light yellowish-green color. In the adults, as I was to learn quite soon, this color deepens to an olive-green and is darker in the male than in the female. Further, the heads of the adults are not so out of proportion to their bodies as in the case of the young. The iris of the eyes is blood-red, as in albinos, while the pupil is dark. The eyeball itself is very white, as are the teeth. These latter add a most ferocious appearance to an otherwise fearsome and terrible countenance, as the lower tusks curve upward to sharp points, which end about where the eyes of earthly human beings are located. The whiteness of the teeth is not that of ivory, but of the snowiest and most gleaming of china. Against the dark background of their olive skins their tusks stand out in a most striking manner, making these weapons present a singularly formidable appearance. Most of these details I noted later, for I was given but little time to speculate on the wonders of my new discovery. I had seen that the eggs were in the process of hatching, and as I stood watching the hideous little monsters break from their shells, I failed to notice the approach of a score of full-grown Martians from behind me. Coming as they did over the soft and soundless moss, which covers practically the entire surface of Mars, with the exception of the frozen areas at the poles and the scattered cultivated districts, they might have captured me easily, but their intentions were far more sinister. It was the rattling of the accoutrements of the foremost warrior which warned me. On such a little thing my life hung, that I often marvel that I escaped so easily. Had not the rifle of the leader of the party swung from its fastenings beside his saddle in such a way as to strike against the butt of his great metal-shod spear, I should have snuffed out without ever knowing that death was near me. But the little sound caused me to turn and there, upon me not ten feet from my breast, was the point of that huge spear, a spear forty feet long, tipped with gleaming metal, and held low at the side of a mounted replica of the little devils I had been watching. But how puny and harmless they now looked beside this huge and terrific incarnation of hate, of vengeance, and of death. The man himself, for such I may call him, was fully fifteen feet in height, and on earth would have weighed some four hundred pounds. He sat his mount as we sit a horse, grasping the animal's barrel with his lower limbs, while the hands of his two right arms held his immense spear low at the side of his mount. His two left arms were outstretched laterally to help preserve his balance, the thing he rode having neither bridle nor reins of any description for guidance. And his mount! How can earthly words describe it? It towered ten feet at the shoulder, 
had four legs on either side, a broad flat tail, larger at the tip than at the root, and which it held straight out behind while running, a gaping mouth which split its head from its snout to its long massive neck. Like its master, it was entirely devoid of hair, but was of a dark slate color and exceeding smooth and glossy. Its belly was white, and its legs shaded from the slate of its shoulders and hips to a vivid yellow at the feet. The feet themselves were heavily padded and nailless, which fact had also contributed to the noiselessness of their approach, and in common with a multiplicity of legs is a characteristic feature of the fauna of Mars. The highest type of man, and one other animal, the only mammal existing on Mars, alone have well-formed nails, and there are absolutely no hoofed animals in existence there. Behind this first charging demon trailed nineteen others, similar in all respects, but, as I learned later, bearing individual characteristics peculiar to themselves, precisely as no two of us are identical, although we are all cast in a similar mold. This picture, or rather materialized nightmare, which I have described at length, made but one terrible and swift impression on me as I turned to meet it. Unarmed and naked as I was, the first law of nature manifested itself in the only possible solution of my immediate problem, and that was to get out of the vicinity of the point of the charging spear. Consequently, I gave a very earthly and at the same time superhuman leap to reach the top of the Martian incubator, for such I determined it must be. My effort was crowned with a success which appalled me no less than it seemed to surprise the Martian warriors, for it carried me fully thirty feet into the air, and landed me a hundred feet from my pursuers, and on the opposite side of the enclosure. I alighted upon the soft moss easily and without mishap, and, turning, saw my enemies lined up along the further wall. Some were surveying me with expressions which I afterward discovered marked extreme astonishment, and the others were evidently satisfying themselves that I had not molested their young. They were conversing together in low tones and gesticulating and pointing toward me. Their discovery that I had not harmed the little Martians, and that I was unarmed, must have caused them to look upon me with less ferocity. But, as I was to learn later, the thing which weighed most in my favor was my exhibition of herdling. While the Martians are immense, their bones are very large, and they are muscled only in proportion to the gravitation which they must overcome. The result is that they are infinitely less agile and less powerful in proportion to their weight than an earthman, and I doubt that were one of them suddenly to be transported to earth, he could lift his own weight from the ground. In fact, I am convinced that he could not do so. My feat, then, was as marvelous upon Mars as it would have been upon earth, and from desiring to annihilate me, they suddenly looked upon me as a wonderful discovery, to be captured and exhibited among their fellows. The respite my unexpected agility had given me permitted me to formulate plans for the immediate future, and to note more closely the appearance of the warriors, for I could not disassociate these people in my mind from those other warriors who, only the day before, had been pursuing me. 
I noted that each was armed with several other weapons, in addition to the huge spear which I have described. The weapon which caused me to decide against an attempt at escape by flight was what was evidently a rifle of some description, and which I felt, for some reason, they were peculiarly efficient in handling. These rifles were of a white metal, stocked with wood, which I learned later was a very light and intensely hard growth, much prized on Mars, and entirely unknown to us denizens of Earth. The metal of the barrel is an alloy composed principally of aluminum and steel, which they have learned tempered to a hardness far exceeding that of the steel with which we are familiar. The weight of these rifles is comparatively little, and with the small caliber explosive radium projectiles which they use, and the great length of the barrel, they are deadly in the extreme, and at ranges which would be unthinkable on earth. The theoretic effective radius of this rifle is 300 miles, but the best they can do in actual service, when equipped with their wireless finders and sighters, is but a trifle over 200 miles. This is quite far enough to imbue me with great respect for the Martian firearm, and some telepathic force must have warned me against an attempt to escape in broad daylight from under the muzzles of twenty of these death-dealing machines. The Martians, after conversing for a short time, turned and rode away in the direction from which they had come, leaving one of their number alone by the enclosure. When they had covered perhaps two hundred yards, they halted, and turning their mounts toward us, sat watching the warrior by the enclosure. He was the one whose spear had so nearly transfixed me, and was evidently the leader of the band, as I had noted that they seemed to have moved to their present position at his direction. When his force had come to a halt, he dismounted, threw down his spear and small arms, and came around the end of the incubator toward me, entirely unarmed and as naked as I, except for the ornament strapped upon his head, limbs, and breast. When he was within about fifty feet of me, he unclasped an enormous metal armlet, and holding it toward me in the open palm of his hand, addressed me in a clear, resonant voice, but in a language it is needless to say I could not understand. He then stopped, as though waiting for my reply, pricking up his antennae-like ears, and cocking his strange-looking eyes still further toward me. As the silence became painful, I concluded to hazard a little conversation on my own part, as I had guessed that he was making overtures of peace. The throwing down of his weapon, and the withdrawing of his troop before his advance toward me, would have signified a peaceful mission anywhere on earth, so why not then on Mars? Placing my hand over my heart, I bowed low to the Martian, and explained to him that while I did not understand his language, his actions spoke for the peace and friendship that at the present moment were most dear to my heart. Of course, I might have been a babbling brook for all the intelligence my speech carried to him, but he understood the actions with which I immediately followed my words. Stretching my hand toward him, I advanced and took the armlet from his open palm, clasping it about my arm above the elbow, smiled at him, and stood waiting. His wide mouth spread into an answering smile, and, locking one of his intermediary arms in mine, we turned 
and walked back toward his mount. At the same time, he motioned his followers to advance. They started toward us on a wild run, but were checked by a signal from him. Evidently he feared that were I to be really frightened again, I might jump entirely out of the landscape. He exchanged a few words with his men, motioned to me that I would ride behind one of them, and then mounted his own animal. The fellow designated reached down two or three hands and lifted me up behind him on the glossy back of his mount, where I hung on as best I could by the belts and straps which held the Martian's weapons and ornaments. The entire cavalcade then turned and galloped away toward the range of hills in the distance. End of chapter 3